Hello, everyone. Welcome uh, to Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter using at Disrupt TV Show and sending us your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV. Ray, myself, and our distinguished guest will do our best to respond to you live during the show. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's a best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business and a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review and ZDNet. You can follow Ray on Twitter, one of the top futurists on Twitter, at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray, from India to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot, and uh, great to be here with Bob Afshar as you know my co-host. He is the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce, number one CIO and CMO influencer on social channels, and also active blogger, and also an author himself. Happening, and we've got some great startups, and let's talk about our two guests that are coming up. So uh, we got to do a better job of branding our show because I see great branding with our two uh, two guests. We are fortunate to have <laughs> we are fortunate to have both the CEO and the CTO of Proofv uh, as our first guests. Toby Olshinevsky is the co-founder and CEO of Proof. Uh, Proof is the world's uh, first proof of concept as a service. This is a really important distinction. We'll talk about that as a service platform that helps enterprises find, test drive, and implement new technologies. Toby has had 20 years of entrepreneurship experience. He's led several successful startups and has had senior roles in areas of cybersecurity, mobile development, e-commerce, and online banking. You can follow Toby on Twitter at T-O-B-Y-O-L. Welcome, Toby, to Disrupt TV. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure being here. Excellent. Next to Toby, you also have Alexei uh, Saposnikov, co-founder and CTO of Proof. Uh, Alexei is another avid entrepreneur with 20 plus years of R&D experience. He co-founded three startups prior to joining Proof and uh, domains of big data uh, prevention, big data crash prevention, user engagement algorithms, and performance monitoring. He's a former research and development director at SAP Labs and holds multiple patents. You can follow Alexi on Twitter at A-L-S-A-P-O-Z. Welcome, Alexi, to Disrupt TV. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> Excellent. I'm, there's going to probably a little delay. I usually hey, thanks a lot, guys, for being on the show. We, of course, we don't, we don't invite any slackers. So hopefully you hear me. We don't invite any slackers to the show. But uh, why do companies need this tool for proof of concept? What's going on? How did you come up with the idea? That's a very simple uh, answer. Actually, it's a result of uh, 20 years of pain of uh, me and Alexi uh, being um, basically chasing CTOs and CIOs and chief security officers for 20 years, trying to convince them to open for us a testing environment so we can actually do proof of concept of one of our previous technologies with our previous uh, startups. And we saw that for 20 years, nothing had changed in the way how a vendor is approaching uh, an enterprise and trying to convince them to do a POC. And about uh, two and a half years ago, when we uh, sold our previous company, we said that we must do something in the, in the landscape and change this uh, uh, way. We didn't know how big the disruption is that uh, we're going to do, uh, we're going to impact the industry, 
but uh, the result is uh, crazy. That's fantastic. Is it is it easier uh, to work with digital native companies, companies that were born in the cloud? They're more, they're mobile, they're social, they're analytics driven. Is it easier for to conduct proof of concept as a service with digital native companies as compared to digital immigrant companies that are brick and mortar and not, let's say, SaaS, PaaS, or IAS companies? Actually, when we started uh, our journey of uh, before building a proof, we did something which is, again, unique to me and Alexi, is that before we are jumping in, when we started coding a code, we did a very big legwork of interviewing 170, I repeat, 170 enterprises and vendors from across the globe and from different verticals. Because when we started, we, we are coming up back on the cybersecurity and financial technologies. So we know very well, you know, the, the, the big Fortune 500 and the banking industry. But it was important for us to, to interview uh, enterprises from different verticals um, and also from different sizes. So we interview companies from Fortune 10 to Fortune 1000, up to uh, small, medium business, up to medium businesses. And what we saw, is it doesn't matter the size of the, uh, the enterprise or the organization, everybody today is trying to innovate. Everybody today is trying to reinvent themselves. For sure, uh, the more regulatory industries, like the financial, pharmaceutical, car industries, that are now facing a new situation that they need to pass innovation, um, their hands are tied. So they are seeing our platform as the best thing that ever happened to them. That's amazing. That's amazing. And and w w when you when you think about uh, and, and what's go ahead. Ray. Oh no problem. I was just saying, you know, when when you think about you know the testing environment that people are in, I mean, so we see multi clouds coming up. We see people having to deal with hybrid cloud environments. We've got situations where, you know, the testing environments are just pretty ugly out there. Um, you know, how do you support that? Well, I think this is part of the thing that's uh, what we did. We actually took a very complex situation and via technology, we provided a simple solution to our customers. We actually, we are facing two sides of our customers. We have the vendors, which are ISV startups, um, et cetera and we have the enterprises from the other side. So via technology, we took this complex uh, problem and we made it easy. And how we are tackling it. So let's start with the, uh, the vendor startup side. So for the startup, what we are doing is basically we are digesting the entire problem of the POC. We are providing what we call a POC package. In that POC package, the, the, the vendor and the startups are getting from us the full RFP of actually what is the requirement, what's, what you need to do. A full understanding of the environment and the production environment of what's going to be the end implementation for your solution. It doesn't matter if this is a, a SaaS solution or a hybrid, like it's an on-prem plus SaaS or only on-prem. So we are uh, making everything in a standard way. Also, we make a standard about the endpoint integration of the vendor to connect to the enterprise. And the last thing, we give the enterprise, sorry, the vendors uh, a communication platform that it doesn't matter where they are located in the world. For example, you're right, right now in India, we have many Indian uh, vendors, that they can, without traveling, talk directly via our platform with Fortune 10 Enterprise and try to ask the question and get everything simplified. So this POC package makes a standard way how a vendor from across the globe are actually connecting to enterprises from across the globe. And we have many, many uh, success uh, cases of uh, you know, vendors from uh, 
the Netherlands or Singapore connecting to American or European enterprise without flying and without uh, them even uh, meeting uh, for the first time. For the enterprise side, and this is where the big magic is, uh, is happening, we have few ways of how we are helping them. First of all, and this was a surprise to us actually when we did the, the interview and we interviewed 170 uh, uh, enterprises, is that one of the biggest pain that they had at the beginning is that they were wasting their time with so many, uh, let's call them too early vendors or startups that are really uh, in the younger stages, that basically the startup wanted the enterprise as a design partner, or they wanted to use the enterprise as a, as a uh, you know, to try to fine tune the product without having a real product. And they found an ambassador in one of those enterprises, and he actually, you know, he, he made the efforts and he, he was trying to push them inside, and, and you know, uh, how many resources that takes. And then this vendor is failing when they started doing the, the POC, and this guy in the enterprise is losing his face. So first of all, we have a, a vetting mechanism. We call it approved by proof, that we are checking every vendor on our platform, and we're doing two types of uh, checks. One is a security and financial check, and the other one is that he has a real technology. Uh, financial check is very simple. We're using uh, APIs like uh, Crunchbase, CB Insights, and different uh, analysts to, uh, uh, that our analysts in the company are using, just to make sure that uh, this is a real company. But the more important is that, uh, let's say a company is coming to doing a, a new generation of chatbot or blockchain. So we are open an environment and we tell this vendor, connect, run a POC, we upload it a data for that uh, environment. And you'll be surprised how many vendors are falling in this stage. Mm -hmm. So first of all, we have right now on the platform about 1,200 vendors out of 4,761, I checked before this call. So out of, you, you can see that more than two thirds, we actually politely denied them because they were too early or too young. So we are helping the, the enterprise to meet the right uh, uh, vendors. The second thing is that they don't need to do multiple integration. With our platform, they can run multiple POCs with multiple vendors at the same time, and they can run comparison with the real Apple-to-Apple -Apple, uh, comparison on business KPI and technical KPI on different technology. So let's say that a bank is now checking a blockchain. And blockchain technology, you know, it's usually a very sexy um, and a hype startups with the, that they're working on the latest technologies. But one technology is a SaaS, another technology is a, is a on-prem solution, another one is a, is a hybrid. How do you actually compare if this is the best solution for you? So our algorithm uh, are normalizing the, real, the, the results, and on the dashboard that we are offering the enterprise, you can see a real-time Apple-to-Apple comparison. Mm -hmm. And then we're adding a simulation to the API to show the enterprise how easy it is going to be to implement that technology. Then we have a tool that we can uh, generate the different KPIs, how to actually measure. You'll be surprised how many you know, top CTOs from top financial institutions are clueless how to actually check a blockchain. You know, how do you check one blockchain company to the other? What are the comparisons? What, what are the tools that you are comparing? So with our business KPI tool, we give them the ability how to uh, uh, bypass this uh, problem. Another thing that we are helping them a lot, specifically the regulated industry, is with the data that we are creating for the POC. Because you know, even Salesforce or any other large enterprise which are not regulated, for them to connect vendors and to provide their own personal data is a sensitive thing. And if you're talking about regulation and you know, like financials, uh, insurance company, credit cards, pharmaceutical, they cannot provide this data for the vendors. So one of our key strengths is the, what we call deep mirroring is the ability to generate from scratch a POC data. 
is specific data for the POC that the, all the vendors are connecting and running the, uh, the POC. And the enterprise can see in real time, and everything is in real time, and nobody can, sorry for my language, can bullshit them by sending them screenshots of PDF file, you know, that was my result of the POC. No, they can actually see in real time how, how the graphs are building, where they are falling, etc. And last thing, we give them a, a mathematical tool, which is a prediction analytics. This is actually, this guy is one of the, you know, smartest guy in Israel. And we know each other, we're like a marriage couple. We know each other for 20 years, so <laughs> for 20 years. Uh, so we created a, a very sophisticated <laughs> Uh, prediction analytics tool that during the POC, we are checking how the uh, result of the KPIs, and then via mathematical tool, we tell you if you move this from a POC environment to your production, this is going to be the result or, or the stress part or, or the chaotic points that you're going to uh, crash uh, the system. And this really helps the. the so, so there's, there's, there's multi-dimensional analysis from financial viability to technological viability, uh, from scaling to security to, and then ultimately uh, our analytics captured from the uh, proof of concept so that you can better guide and accelerate execution velocity. Uh, so, so to, to, Toby or Alexi, uh, when you talk to these 170 companies and you analyze their capabilities, Couple of questions. One, how many of them actually had a formal proof of concept process? Um, and then when you get to a point where you're satisfied, your, your platform analytics show that there's a viable uh, capability and market need, how, what's the next step of going from proof of concept to actually commercialized available uh, solution in the market? Okay, so uh, first of all, the amazing thing that we discovered uh, during our uh, questioning of the corporates is that uh, it, it's not about the having formal process or doesn't have formal process. It's more about that uh, those labs, those innovation labs of the big corporates, they don't have actually one tool they can that can uh, vent with them through the whole process, like end-to-end uh, uh, -end chain. Yeah. Uh, part of the pains that uh, they are facing via this uh, journey are actually not so easy to solve. For example, if you have, a, a, like Toby just said, if you have a classified production that you cannot like, expose to an even your QA environment, that you cannot expose to any upcoming startup, and you cannot explain that this is my data, and I'm, for instance, I'm looking uh, for a BI uh, vendor or for a uh, visualizer of my big data store. So in, 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 I cannot expose my data. I cannot expose my testing data. I cannot expose my data. So how am I supposed to do a POC? That's, that's a critical problem. Right. And, and if uh, I need to spend my personal time, which is each upcoming startup, each upcoming vendor, and, 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 and like to discuss various uh, kinds of integration for one topic, what is my ROI of this POC? Mm. So those are regressions that a, a corporate that uh, actually uh, doesn't have to like prove. They spend a lot of resources, money, and, and, and uh, everything to just to go to this to the result of or, or to the judgment of POC. Right. So when we are using our tool like deep mirroring, we are permitting those corporates actually to 
create something that resembles their productions, resembles their data, the same distributions, the same uh, trends, the same everything, even with a bigger amount, uh, uh, we are simulating the behavior of their APIs, but the, but the key is that this is not their data, even not their QA data. This is other data that behave in the same way. Other APIs that behave in the same way. Now, to address your question about what is the way that uh, wow. the end of the POC, after the judgment and after getting the winner, after the uh, nominating the winner, what is the way that actually the product is moved from the uh, environment to the real production environment of the corpus? So without that, this is a big headache for, for, for the CEOs and CTOs. Because as we can easily understand, uh, productions are much bigger. The scale there is much, like, much different from the testing or benchmark testing environment. Yeah. And this is a huge new project that CEOs, CTOs must uh, go through. And usually this is already coming to the, uh, to the uh, uh, paid situation. So we are providing a fast tools for deployment that are uh, using really cutting, cutting edge technologies like POC and uh, like uh, various uh, SaaS services from various uh, cloud brokers that are permitting us to uh, significantly simplify this part and uh, like uh, make this part very easy for CEOs, CTOs to just move the installation from the POC to the uh, uh, real production. If I just may say something and that's unique about... Hey Toby, Alexei, question for you. So uh, just to, to add something... And, and I wanted to switch gears um, quickly as well. Um, one of the things that we try to figure out is uh, what's going on with the uh, startup scene in uh, different relocations. And you recently received funding expanding in New York City, um, and you're in Tel Aviv as well as the Bay Area. Tell us a little bit what's different as you recruit folks and as you look for talent and, and really the environment in all those areas. Uh, pleasure. I think uh, one of the, the main thing that is uh, very unique about the, the Tel Aviv startup scene is that it's very fast. It's, we are working on a fast mode. Uh, there's a special word in Hebrew for that, chutzpah. But I'm sure that uh, you've heard that. So we're using, uh, you know, it's a fast mode, it's chutzpah. Uh, out of the box is not something that we tell our team, work out of the box. This is, this is the mainstream. So how do you break that? Uh, shortcut. It's a big problem, but one of our key strengths is that uh, we are shortcutting about everything. Sometimes uh, we are working without manuals that, uh, you know, it creates a bigger problem once you are skating right. in a big way. But uh, this has really helped us uh, wow. uh, run and break the rules. Uh, you know, this is part of the DNA of the Israeli startup. I think one of the, another strong thing is that uh, friendship. Uh, you won't find anywhere that in the world that, uh, you know, the, the ecosystem, the Israeli ecosystem, you know, the startups and the companies are helping each other. And, and you can see that in the different meetups, you know. And I think it's coming from... Uh, the army experience that uh, most of us either know each other or been out into this uh, pressure incubator into the army. Um, so we are sharing the experience. Uh, you know, we we are helping a lot of each other, and this is really unique, uh, especially when I'm traveling and I'm meeting uh, startups uh, from across the globe. And, you know, you mentioned New York, San Francisco, but also in Asia um, and in Europe, this friendship and sharing uh, mode um, is very unique to Israel. And of course, the, you know, the, the chutzpah and breaking the, the rules. <laughs> this is how we're doing it fast. 
<laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Toby Volishnitsky and Alexei Zaposnikov, the CEO and CTO of Prove. Uh, this is an incredible capability that all companies need. It's not just about product and service innovation. It's about business model innovation. And if you're not able to do fast, agile, comprehensive, robust proof of concept studies, you put yourself in a position to potentially fail. So it's a critical capability and all companies need to consider how to improve their execution velocity when it comes to proof of concept. So thank you so much. We look forward to learning more from you and uh, thank you for being a guest on Disrupt TV. Pleasure. Thank you very much. For thank you day. very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you both. Hey, thank you guys. Okay. Well, uh, you know, as a, thank you. as a former uh, chief customer and chief marketing officer, you know, I spent a lot of years trying to uh, help my company conduct proof of concept. So it's a, uh, it's, it's, it's very important capability. And, and we're going to now shift. It's an, it's an honor for Ray and I to have Dr. Patty Fletcher, author of Disruptors, Success Strategies from Women Who Break the Mold. And, and, and we'll learn that this is not a book about what women should do or it's not a preachy TED talk. <laughs> this is a book that really talks to uh, outcomes uh, that we can all learn from. Dr. Patty Fletcher is a seasoned tech executive, award-winning marketing influencer, board member, angel investor, and speaker. Uh, she has written for Entrepreneur, Inc., The Guardian, The Digitalist. There's a long list of uh, contributions across Time Magazine, Fortune, Forbes, uh, and, and, and many more. Uh, Dr. Fletcher advises corporate executives and board members from lean startups. Definitely, not a uh, To Fortune 500 uh, companies uh, and and. She's currently an executive in resident at Babson College and must follow on Twitter at P-K-F-L-E-T-C-H-E-R. Welcome, Dr. Fletcher, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. And I think one of the core cool questions that's important is you actually start by recommending folks that they should, women, that they should disrupt rather than lean in. And I'm a fan. What does that mean? Yes. <laughs> so when I, first, I, I have to say, um, I, the, the thing about Lean In that was wonderful is that it brought this topic to the mainstream. And that's, that's critically important. But unfortunately, the message was wrong. Myself, any other woman who I've had the honor of working with, if we leaned in anymore, our faces would hit the ground. And so, right, so it's it's kind of saying, here's a book, right, <laughs> that says, hey, ladies, there's something wrong with you. And then what the book goes on to say is essentially, look, you need to negotiate like a man, you need to act like a man. And I just don't buy it. Number one, not every man lacks like a man in quote marks. Right. So it's not. A I'm, I'm going to be rude and say like when you have 12 men support folks to help you out, you're not you're not really leaning in either. So I'll just start there. <laughs> that's right. And so that's absolutely right. So what we what we have to and it's essentially saying, look, women, right, you're not doing enough and you're not doing it right. And instead, you know, Ray, you and I did a panel together. I don't know if you remember that or not, but one of the first things I did after I started really focusing on this topic after getting my, my PhD 
was on women who hold board of director positions in publicly held life sciences and technology businesses. And, and that was my, my dissertation. And my big focus from a, a doctoral perspective was on transformational leadership. And these things go together very, very much. But one of the first things we, I did was I hosted this panel, facilitated it, and you were on the panel. And it was about, and I don't know if you remember that, it was about um, getting more women into this particular enterprises um, development community because it only had about 10 percent of the time so I was all like wow this is awesome everybody's gonna be all into this and so I go on stage and essentially I made like the, the most awful awful um uh kind of nuance which was pointing at all the men in the audience and saying blame and shame it's all your fault right instead of doing what I now do coming from a process background enterprise software background I apply the same kind of thing to this problem. Instead of leaning in, what we must do is take a step back and say, why is this possible? Why is it possible despite the representation of women or any other underrepresented population, why is it possible that this could happen? They could be underrepresented and it always comes back to one thing. There's nothing wrong with men. There's nothing wrong with women. The problem is the system and that's what the focus should be. Sure, sure. Well, in the in the book Disruptors, uh, you, you demystify what it takes to get to where you want to be. And there are different, um, not stages, but you talk about exploring the mindset uh, in, in terms of what it takes to succeed against all odds. You talk about discovering the right timing, uh, learning the right habits, uh, building a personal board of directors, and then revealing what it means to achieve your own version of what success looks like. So there was a nice step-by-step -step process, a multidimensional approach. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about that, but also what's the most important thing that women can do today to, to become a disruptor? Yeah. Or, or men for that matter. But, yeah. but, uh, right, because it's, it's the same answer, right? How we do it might be a little bit different, but it's, it's the same answer. And so overwhelming, first let's talk about what a disruptor is. You may have a, a different viewpoint, right? I don't know, you two seem a little disruptive and especially considering the name of the show. But how I define disruptor is somebody who sees a status quo that's no longer serving the environment in which it's in and they know that they can stop at nothing until that's disrupted. And the truth is disruption can't you can't do it you can't create it you can't be successful at it unless you're willing to take a look in the mirror and be willing to disrupt yourself in the first place and your number one question should be what am i doing to get in my own way right what am i doing what are the mindsets holding me back and for women they tend to be about focusing in on well i don't really have the confidence because just being a disruptor means you're always doing something new there's no way you could have had experience right to, to get that confidence so instead what you do is you take a personal inventory and your personal inventory is around well i might not have done this before but where do i have competence right it doesn't matter if i didn't do it before do i have the tools to be able to say i'll figure it out and that's who you know that's you know what you might have done before and then to say okay great got that now what exactly is the status quo that i want to disrupt what's no longer serving not only me but a very large population of people and asking that question 
why, right? Why is this happening? And do a full context. The who, what, why, um, you know, is it impacting everyone or, or just some people? And then the next thing that disruptors, particularly female disruptors, really do need to shift besides the confidence and competence piece, because women especially tend to really want to understand a problem, um, is that they, um, they focus in on um, the kind of what you know right and because we're told as women that we are hired for our experience and not for our potential men are hired for experience and not potential so it's bringing it back to who do i know no, sorry it's not what do i know it's not who do i know it's who knows you right and we'll probably cover that a little bit more so who do i know is super important and what you use as a frame there is not trying to solve the entire problem yourself and instead right say you know i have to take on this whole thing instead say what do i bring to the table from a competence perspective what am i good at and how do i leverage my social capital in order to fill those gaps with people who've been down this specific road before sure sure we had a guest on our show whitney johnson uh, an author that writes about disruption and she reminded us that it's it's lonely and scary mm -hmm. disrupting uh, and just any change. And so expect these obstacles and anticipate. And, but when you think about your research and, and you've obviously have extensive experience working with companies, what is holding back gender equality in terms of leadership positions with companies uh, in, in, in the US as an example? Yeah, so this is where I have to take my soapbox, uh, soapbox out and throw it against the wall because I could talk about this forever and I don't know, it sounds like you have another guest after me. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the first thing is words matter. And I love when I get asked this question. We are not aiming for equality because equality assumes that we all start at the same place, we all face the same path, and we all get to the same finish line, right? It determines what people invest in in terms of programs and education and all that. What we should be focusing in on is equity, and that would be a huge difference. So what does that mean? We have a very kind of one size fits all in organizations. Here's what success looks like. Here's what the person looks like, right? You can imagine all the unconscious biases that are there. And therefore, let's invest in programs to get women more networked. They're all well-meaning, by the way, right? Let, let's invest in kind of upping leadership skills, even for somebody as old as me, and that drives me crazy. Instead, what we need to do is we need to get to an and culture where we understand what whatever underrepresented population we're talking about where are they starting from what obstacles will they face why is it that women are not getting beyond the director level why is it that women of color are leaving tech at three times the rate of men and they're not being replaced right what is that and until we focus in on equity giving people what they need based on where they are starting from where they want to go and the obstacles they're going to face is really the key and that is holding it back and and the thing about the system is that we have 150 different unconscious biases at play in our brains at any given time, right? That's a lot. And they determine everything, what we value, the decisions that we make, how we view. And unless we are looking at that system, which is 
very one way, right? It's, it's very usually transactional, even when we think it's transformational. Um, and it's set up for somebody who doesn't look like the person I'm seeing right now, looking back at me on this camera or anyone else. We have to start judging, right? We have to start disrupting our own system. Absolutely. And until that happens, and by the way, this is all about progress, not perfection, right? The typical entrepreneur view. Right. Nobody believes that there's, you know, all of a sudden we're going to find the smoking gun. We've got to entrepreneur the heck out of being able to do this so that our population of innovators, our population of leaders, you know, who design, who makes the product, designs the product, sells the product, begins to look a more like the people who are using it. I love that. Now, one of the things that I think people are, are trying to figure out is, you know, boards and board positions. Yeah. Um, what can people do to actually get put into a board and not put in there because, um, okay, that's the woman slot <laughs> or put in there because everyone failed and let's just try that. Because we've seen that in CEOs, right? A lot of um, women CEOs got positions because nobody else wanted the job or it was a really, really bad hand yeah. and they were put in the very, very bad situation. And then it was like, okay, that looks like we've got a bad CEO in this place when really the conditions were pretty bad. And so how does that shift? How do we make those, those shifts yeah, in the market? Ray, I'm so happy you brought up that example. It's called the glass cliff, right? It's kind of like, well, the boat, you know, the ship's sinking anyway. Let's throw her in there and then, you know, kind of blame her for everything, right? Even though it's not her fault, even though it was hard. But of course, we have really good examples of women who have turned things around. And that has created a very harsh environment for female CEOs and board members on the street more so to the women than to the men. And they're not really nice to the men either. So what can we do? We all know that that there's a few different things, right? Let's talk about what women can do and let's talk about what we can do to change the system. We mean everybody, because this is a human topic. This is an economic imperative, right? This is all about the talent economy and the, the, the fifth industrial revolution, sorry, fourth industrial revolution, right? All of that stuff. So the, the first thing is we know that in the C-suite and in the boardroom, those positions are like 99% filled by referrals. Right? And we also know, based on my research and the research of so many others, that one of the distinguishing and most important factors going back to it's not what you know, it's not who you know, it's who knows you, is that men tend to not get mentored. By the time they're about 35, they start getting champions, right? Advocates, people who are going to speak for them when they're not in the room. And, you know, Vala, this goes back to something I constantly quote you on that you said on Twitter years ago, which was, you don't own your brand, right? Your brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. And knowing that there are those unconscious biases around women have to have already proved to themselves, such as she, is she a board member anywhere else versus men, he has the competence and potential that it's really important that women get out there and they get out there starting to create and cultivate relationships over a few years. Most women who contact me want to be on a board in six months. It doesn't work that way, right? It's typically a seven year kind of gig. So it's number one, really creating those relationships, navigating, creating almost like a network map to, to get to the people that, that, maybe sit on boards or influence who those boards are on the type of company that they want to impact. And so of course, the women have to, just like any board member, right? The CEO is not there to train you. I hear that a lot. I should be on a, a startup board. No, it doesn't quite work that way, right? It's more about what do you bring to the table? How can you coach? How can you govern? Where's the gap? So it's really important to understand that women don't 
they create relationships. So really doing that authentically and what gets other folks to champion, typically men, because other men will listen to them and men still control those decisions, is that they, um, they build those relationships, relationships where those advocates, those potential influencers, see how they think, see the outcome. So lots of folks do like nonprofit boards and you know just kind of hanging out and being in the right circle. So that's for women. From the system perspective, there's been some great research, Dr. Breisendine did some and, and many others that said, okay, now let's take a systems view. There's this thing called the lost decade for women, those women kind of in the middle, they've had a lot of experience, and yet they're, they're the forgotten ones, right? They're not leaving the workforce, they're not entering the workforce, and therefore they're not, we're not investing in them. But what happens in our 30s is that that's when people start to pay attention. That's when we get our kind of biggest promotions that lead us to, if we're upwardly mobile, if that's where we want to go, that lead us to that. And yet going back to the equity thing, right, that is called the motherhood penalty where where folks are going mm, you know what she might not be able to handle because it's so competitive we need so much whether she wants to have kids or not so we need to rethink well perhaps it is a lot for a woman to take on in her 30s but why the heck do you stop at your 30s when you're looking for that kind of talent between your 40s you're like 40 to 49 is when we start getting airmarked right for the c-suite and for board positions and that makes sense that tends to be when we've had a lot of experience we've had good failures we've had good wins and most importantly because the c-suite and especially the board are all about who you know that becomes important because you bring your contact list with you that that seems to make sense but here's the problem that works for men and it doesn't work for women because their cup tend to run it over, whether they have kids or not, they're usually in the same generation if they do, and there are other biological reasons, right? So why not start looking at women in their 50s? When I did my dissertation, those amazing, you know, path pavers, they tended to really kind of get to a point of the WTF, right? Where you just say, screw it. But then they really push themselves. They've created those relationships. And it was in their 50s where they gained that confidence and men started to invest in them. Yeah, I remember seeing that Heidi Hartman paper when it came back. I think that's what you're referring back to. Yeah, from the Institute for Women's Policies. And uh, that was a, a pretty, pretty interesting paper showing the gaps and the, and the places where they come in. And we also see the fact that, you know, with, with people, um, you know, the age um, in terms of like people are staying in the workforce. I mean, going into the fifties is definitely going to be something that happens because in the workforce. Now, you, you know, we always ask this question and it's really about mentors, mentorships and what's happening. Um, what are people doing? What are women doing in terms of finding opportunities for other women um, in different generations? Is it happening in folks that are like a 10 or 15 year age gap or is it a 30 year age gap because people feel like they're competing with the folks below them? I, so I'm not, I'm not sure I'm going to answer your question. Is this related to mentors and helping women rise and being worried? Um, it's related to mentorships in general, because um, I think we've seen a lot of cases where it's very hard to mentor people that are 10 years 
younger than you oh, yeah. because you feel like they're going to try to take over your job. But it's easier when the age gap is a little bit larger and then you see reverse mentoring working in very interesting ways. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And I'm reverse mentored all the time, right? It's, especially when I go out kind of on the, the education speaking circuit. So there's this other buzzword, right? We just talked about Glasscliff a few minutes ago. The other buzzword is the queen bee syndrome. And there's this, yes. right? It's that kind of like unconscious bias around there's only room for one woman and I'm in that position, right? And we're pushing down. And certainly, you know, I've personally experienced it, but mostly it's, it's become more tribal for women because we know we have to have each other's backs. But here's the thing. I, I think mentorship drives me crazy. Um, not for the young talent, because young talent does need to be mentored. They haven't walked the path. They don't have the competence yet. They don't know the questions to ask, right? Don't necessarily know how to be authentic and build relationships. Fine. And, and then we see mentorship try to be applied to somebody who actually has the experience when really those folks need coaches. So going back to your question about the who, not just from a gender perspective, but across the board, companies fail when they try to have a C-suite person or an SVP or an EVP mentor someone who's like a manager or a director near the workforce. What research shows us, what my experience has shown me, is that it's the next level up. How would, you know, someone like you, Ray, right, or you, Vala, be able to mentor, coach somebody who is so much more junior than you? Because your experience, your mindset's already changed. And as amazing and awesome and star power it would be to be connected with you, it's, it's, it's going to really kind of just stick with inspiration, not practical. So it's super important um, that, you know, if I'm a manager, a senior manager, if I'm a senior manager, right, I'm a director. So it's really, how did you get there? Otherwise, you can't map. It's, it's too long. And then the person above them gets reverse mentored because they're the ones responsible for those folks, right, for that, that level. And so that's extremely important that's because every level of leadership we're learning quite a bit. And then the other piece is, you know, we hear a lot about role models, we need female role models, and that is so important. And maybe because I grew up in tech, and there really weren't women that, that you know, they certainly were peer level, right, but not the kind of upward mobile um, role models, we have to be open to having men as well. We, we, we are 50% of the population, men are 50% of the population, we're all in this together. So I do think it's very important, but really sticking with that next level up. No, this is great. We are here with next Oh, sorry. I was gonna say we're here with Dr. Patty Fletcher, but go ahead, Alex. So, Val, go ahead. No, I, I, I think it's sound, it's sage advice in terms of next level up, because uh, as much as mentoring is important, I, finding a sponsor, someone who's willing to put their political capital to promote you, and, and in some cases, grab your hand and pull you up, that's sponsorship activity, and that's a little bit different than mentoring. And if you don't, if you have that gap where it's a CXO to a, you know, a, a single contributor, you might not be able to find, you know, real sponsorship opportunities where you can go to the next level. So I think that's great advice. Yeah, Thank but you. I do think though, when it comes to reverse mentoring, depending on, I think it was like Johnson and Johnson. It's it's a big case study. I don't remember, but it was one of the the, the CPG companies where they back I don't know about a decade ago they were using reverse mentoring for their C-suite because they had all these women, right? Women are ninety percent of their buyers, and so they had all these women working for them. Very very, you know, they're they're the ones sweeping the floor. Floors, mopping the floors with the secretary, and they were reverse mentoring the C-suite to say, I wouldn't buy that, right? Here's how I wanted to use. That works, especially when it represents the population you're trying to sell to who is not in the room with you. 
Wow. We are here with Dr. Patty Fletcher, author of Disruptors, Success Strategies from Women Who Break the Mold. Book came out in January on Amazon. You can catch her on Twitter at PK Fletcher. And yes, um, we'd love to have you on a panel sometime, maybe out to the conference. We'll talk more about that, but that's in October with us. So, hey, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Bye, guys. Thank you so much. You're terrific. You're terrific. Um, what a great segment. It was a great segment. And, you know, I think you and I need to apologize to our next guest because every time he comes on our show, we have someone really super brilliant before him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not that he isn't brilliant, but there's just this, I always follow somebody like Patty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We always bring doctors, scientists, astronauts, uh, and then we let Ron, you know, bring it home. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so it's uh, so so uh, I, I'm I'm obviously kidding. This is the, our our final segment. Usually has a fant uh, fantastic guest, and our guest today is Ron Miller. Ron Miller, enterprise reporter at TechCrunch. Ron has been a technology journalist since 1998. He started when he was five. Uh, he's also <laughs> editor. E-Content Magazine, where he writes uh, their Media Redux column. He's a regular contributor to, to Disrupt TV. And I really uh, must follow on Twitter at Ron underscore Miller, M-I-L-L-E-R. Welcome, Ron, to Disrupt TV. And before we start, I want to know what you're wearing and why. Okay, well, <laughs> let's show it. Okay. No, no, <laughs> <laughs> the thing I like about the sweatshirt, it doesn't actually mention the name of the team. It just shows championships, you know? <laughs> oh, oh, we will just have to use our imagination here. <laughs> Guess which yeah, one? We need a score. We need a score prediction, Ron. Give us a score prediction before we oh, get into it. I'm not going that. I, I'm, I'm a New Englander. I'm, I'm way, too, uh, way too superstitious for that. All right, good, good answer. <laughs> all right, all right. New England modesty in place. Hey, let's run down the news. We are looking at what's happening and hot wow, in the enterprise. Wow, a lot of news this week. Crazy. I mean, yeah. okay, so we're going to see more acquisitions. We predict that it's going to be $400 billion to, that's coming back on repatriation. You know, CFOs are going to figure out return on capital. We're going to see a ton of acquisitions this year. And SAP comes running out of the gate with... Sure did. They sure did. What is this? Why are they buying Calidus Cloud? How does that make any sense? You know, um, you guys probably know better than I do. <laughs> but but I, I think that, uh, you know, obviously they wanted to get in, into that part of the, of the sales funnel, which is, it's kind of an interesting part. It's after the sale has happened, you know, there's, there's some sales, uh, you know, there's some sales process stuff, but they're like the configure price quote guys, you know. So once you get the, the, the contract signed, then you, you know, you go through their software process to get it all signed, sealed, delivered, um, and, and uh, the, the, uh, the commission handed out or, the, or, or however they deal with it. So it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting buy for SAP and it puts them in an interesting place. And it kind of, you know, puts them in between, you know, it, you, know you thought the ERP was super back office. They, they say this is front office, but it's kind of like mid office, right? Yes, this is like mid-office, and, and from Cindy Zoe, who covers this, she, she actually chimed in. It's sales performance management, CPQ, and incentive comp, all the things after um, what happens in the sale, and, 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 they, and they want to compete in it. And Calidus was known for their uh, incentive comp and CPQ, so, so yeah. definitely in place. $2.4 billion of cloud revenue. I think yeah. that's probably the most important piece. I mean, well, they bought them, they bought them for $2.4 too. I mean, they, that's the price. 
<laughs> so, and, and you know, and, and way back, Cindy's, Cindy's, Cindy's actually pounding in here. So if you look in the chat, Oracle bought big machines, Salesforce by steel brick, you know, and, and, and nice. this is basically SAP to compete. So, okay, interesting. Now, in the cloud world, what happened? What's next? Okay, so we got Red Hat buying uh, CoreOS, which is, you know, you got Red Hat, which of course is known for enterprise Linux. You got CoreOS, which has its own enterprise Linux product, but the two of them are really like going headlong into Kubernetes and containerization and management of all that and trying to package it up in a way that makes it palatable for most enterprises who don't have the staff of geeks to deal with all of this, right? And so, you know, it's one thing to have a product open source like Kubernetes and get it, you know, off GitHub and try and figure it out. But, um, you know, companies like Red Hat and, and CoreOS had been packaging it and putting it together. Now they've combined. Red Hat bought them for $250 million this week. And, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how they incorporate that into their, you know, Kubernetes pipeline and how that all works out. It may be, you know, uh, you know, they, they keep the parallel products. It may be that they start to combine them. I haven't talked to them about that yet, so I'm not sure how they're going to use it. It could have been a, uh, you know, uh, doubling or, you know, increasing your number of customers kind of play. Um, there's a lot to, there's a lot going on there, but the fact that they sort of came off the table and got them and they were actually a uh, Google Ventures uh, startup, you know, they'd been, they'd been, uh, funded by Google Ventures. So it's kind of interesting that Red Hat swooped in and bought them. You wrote about Google, uh, you wrote about Google and their uh, revenue in the cloud and how you compare them to the other cloud elites. What are your thoughts about, uh, you know, the comparisons and the progress they're making? Yeah, that came out last night that um, Dell um, in their earnings, I'm not Dell, I'm sorry, Dell's Ooh. on the brain. But <laughs> Dell should be on the brain. There's a lot of talk about Dell. <laughs> yeah, well, we can talk about them afterwards. But um, Google, you know, during their earnings call with analysts last night, uh, came out with a figure of a billion dollars a quarter, which sounds like a big number. And, I, you know, I talked to Diane Green last night. And she was certainly proud of that number. And, and, you know, she has a right to be. But you know, when you compare it with the other big cloud players, which is, you know, AWS and Microsoft and even IBM, which is, should be in the conversation for sure. You know, it's really about a, their run rate is about a fourth of what the other guys are doing, or even, even a little less. So, you know, they're definitely far below what the other players are doing. But from their perspective, they see a company moving in the right direction. And they say they've got growth in their, in their favor. They say that, you know, they put all the, the pieces in place that we got that $30 billion in infrastructure investment that they did. They have, you know, the enterprise sales team in place. Now they got Diane Green, you know, kind of influencing all of that with her experience. So, you know, they say that this is a good sign. Oh, what did you call it? She called it, uh, you know, puts them in elite company is what you told me. And so <laughs> you, can, you can look at the number. Yeah. You, you think that's PR? <laughs> she, 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 I think they need a new CMO, but that's a different question. But they look at the number and they say, we're on the right track. Um, you know, you, you may look at the number and say, 
uh, well, it seems a little low compared to the other guys. But the other thing to keep in mind is, you know, it's really hard to make an apples to apples comparison in cloud revenue, as you guys know. Um, it's, it's really hard because AWS is pure infrastructure cloud, right? You know, yep. Salesforce is mostly SaaS. You know, uh, uh, Microsoft is mostly SaaS with some, with some Azure thrown in. And, you know, but you, they tend to lump them together and they don't break them down. And nobody has a, like a unified way of saying, this is our revenue and this is what it means. So, you, you know. know the double counting and cloud revenue is just ridiculous if you're yeah. not a pure cloud. And the double counting is, is even crazier when you're looking at the different stacks. And so, so yeah, so and I agree with you. But, but I think the challenge really is that, you know, I mean, Diane has taken the company to a certain level and we're gonna need some more uh, for them to get to catch up to where Microsoft and uh, Amazon is. And that's required real product strategy teams, real product marketing teams, people that actually understand enterprise and enterprise sales. And, uh, and I think they've got to build those teams fast, right? I mean, I think what her contract is up in about what, 19 months, 20 months, something like that. But you know, the, the, the thing is that, 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 and as I wrote, you know, that, it's not a zero sum game, you know, it's not like if Microsoft gets some business or AWS gets some business, it doesn't mean that Google can't, you know, I mean, so Google can come in to some of these companies that are AWS and Microsoft customers and or, and they can still get the business, you know, it's not, it's not like there's this, this like one size fits all kind of market. It's like everybody's using a lot of different vendors. Oh, our clients are definitely going multi-cloud. Right. I mean, it's because of like GDPR, it's because of data, it's because of all the places that people have to work in. Right. It's also because of like country relationships. And so, I mean, it's like, I mean, we know it's going to be Google, Microsoft, Amazon somewhere. Um, it's a question of like how they, how they take advantage of it. So it's going to be interesting to watch. So. Yeah, and it seems like IBM, although they don't have the market share, they charge a lot. <laughs> so they get, they get more money, right? <laughs> so, I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of a funny dynamic that's going on there, right? Yeah, no, that's why the cloud numbers are a little higher. In your report, you said there's 17 billion annual, so it's roughly 4 billion a quarter. Right. Um, is what you noted, um, and AWS at 4.3 billion and so on and so forth. Right. Um, okay, so you've written quite a bit about Dell uh, and yeah, their so, news every day. Um, yeah. So what's going on with Dell? So Dell, you know, the rumors surfaced last week that they were gonna be doing something to, um, you know, they have that huge debt left over from the EMC uh, deal. It's like $46 billion. So they bit off a lot when they got, when they got uh, EMC. And, the thinking was that you know they could kind of sell their way out of it, and they that find a way to to pay that down over a number of years, but they were not counting on the new tax law. And apparently, you know, I'm not an expert on tax law, but apparently, from what I've been reading and hearing, that the new tax law uh, will change the way that they can write off interest, and it's going to make the cost of that loan much higher as we slide into 2019, 2020, 2021. And so they want to find a way to get that debt off the books. And one of the, they're looking at several things. They're looking at um, combining in VMware somewhere, some way, which is either um, buying the remaining 20% or so that they don't own or doing what's called a reverse merger, which is like, the, this is the first time I've ever actually heard that term was this week, um, where VMware buys them. And, or what was, the, what was the third thing? Um, oh yeah, with the IPO, 
Wait, wait, it isn't really an IPO. It's not initial. It's actually second. <laughs> but because but, uh, but, uh, they did it once and then they went private again. But so those are the those are the couple of things that they can do. Are they talking about? And maybe something that they haven't. But what's interesting is this morning, you know, the rumors came out last week. Bloomberg reported on it. CNBC reported on it. I I did some analysis of it based on on those reports, and. This morning, and the, the Dell actually filed a paper with the SEC saying, yes, it's true. All of it's true, and these are the things we're thinking of. So apparently, because they are you know, fiduciarily responsible for their ownership of VMware, they had to report to the SEC that they're actually thinking about this, even though they probably didn't want to do that. So then- For, for, those, of, for those of you who are watching- uh, for those of you who are watching, VMware was seen as the crown jewel in 2015 when Dell acquired right. VMC for $67 billion. And at that point, Dell had 80% of VMware, which is the pioneer in, in a technology called virtualization. So, so that's the history it. behind all of this. And you may be just founded by Dell. We're talking about this, just to link it all together. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you know, you may yeah. recall at the time that a lot of people thought that they would sell off like. 25% of that, you know, or 30%, and not so that they could keep 50%, whatever the number is, and, well, and, uh, and, and, and still be the, the primary owner, but get a bunch of that cash back to pay off the debt. But they never did, you know, as they never did. Well, the way the tax law works is um, when, when you load up on that kind of debt, we, we could actually um, write off that and write off carried interest as well. And, and a couple of things, there are a couple of like techniques that you could do, all gone now. Right. And, and so they don't have much of a choice if they want to pay that back earlier. So it's going to be interesting to watch. And, you know, this is a technique a lot of folks are going to do. Plus, it's also going to change the way, um, you know, hostile acquisitions work because you, you can't just necessarily load up all on the debt and hope that the numbers work out on the other right. end. And it's going to change that calculus and hopefully limit some, some of those kind of like weird acquisitions that, that people have been doing in terms of like activist shareholders that are, that are creating right. a little chaos you know, the debt financing that comes behind it as well. So, so it'll be interesting to see that. Michael, Michael Dell is a genius, so I'm, I'm, I'm sure things will be... Uh, well, he'll pretty, figure it out, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's, oh, yeah. Uh, so yeah. like, seem to know what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. So it's interesting, so, you know, interesting news. So we, we just heard that uh, we're going to six more weeks of winter. That's what the groundhog said in Paxitani, uh, you know, in Pennsylvania. That's something we, we, we all remember as kids since I grew up in yeah. Allentown, Pennsylvania. So Snowflake raises two hundred sixty-three million on a one point five billion dollar. Where are you going with this? Okay, I got yeah, it. I was wondering myself. Yeah, I'm working on this segue. Yeah, Lisa. That was that was a really good transition there. <laughs> so yeah, so that was a huge deal. Um, so, you know, two hundred sixty-three million dollars in one round that raised almost you know a half a billion dollars. Um, they got the huge valuation. And, you know, they got Bob Muglia, who's running that, who's, you know, no slouch. He, he came from Juniper. And Bob Moo rocks. I'm a Bob Moo fan. So. <laughs> and he, uh, you know, he built up, he, you know, he was, a, he was a big company executive. He came to this small company as number, employee number 34. And he built this company up into something, you know, pretty significant. And he's battling, you know, some pretty significant companies. He's battling the Oracles and the, you know, the, the, the uh, Googles and the Microsofts and those kind of, you know, that kind of size company. And he's coming in as a, uh, as a startup and they're doing something pretty, you know, pretty interesting, moving massive amounts of data to the cloud yeah. and, and, and finding ways to manage that. And, you know, a data lake, which is a massive data repository for people who don't know what that is. And, 
you know, to have a cloud data lake is pretty significant. But yeah, and, and the thing is that, you know, like Google and AWS, I think what he would argue is that they, they tend to be less open about what they can pull in. And he, they, he, he would argue that his company is, um, you know, providing a way to get all kinds of data into this data lake. And uh, that's why they're, they're, they're attracting a lot of attention and a lot of money. Now the whole thing is, you know, million uh, yeah. is a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, it sure is. Too. And so the thing is, you know, we've heard about this unicorn, which is when you have a billion dollar valuation, um, you know, and, and is it, is it, you know, significant or is it an albatross, you know, cause like then you have to live up to that big number. And for a startup, it's a lot of pressure. And I asked him about that and he was, he was saying like, look, we're not there yet, but we believe that we can grow into it. And, you know, he, he wouldn't give me his exact sales numbers, but he could have been like doubling or tripling every year. And, and that, I mean, he said he had 475 customers last year in April when I talked to him and they got a hundred million in funding then. Yeah. And when I talked to him the other day at a thousand customers and he said he expects to double that in a year. So if he has 2000 customers and these are not cheap things then, you know, this data lake is an expensive service. So, um, oh, yeah. you know, the fact is that I think he believes and, you know, if those numbers are anywhere close to, you know, to accurate, that he can grow his way into this number and that the, the, the valuation will not be an albatross. The valuation will be something that he believes can be, you know, achieved and, 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 and met and surpassed. Wow. This is something, you know, I think it's going to get even more exciting the next couple of weeks. Lots of mergers. We got a couple of rumors out there. You know, some big SaaS companies worth $25 billion about to be taken over by another bigger SaaS company. You know, we don't know what, that, what that's going to mean. Nothing to do with Yuval, so don't worry. We've <laughs> got <laughs> some big stuff happening just in the background. And, and it's, it's, it's all, all related to this tax change that occurred. I mean, right. and people were actually to figure out how, what to repatriate, refinance, uh, see what they're going to do. And, and it's, it's going to be interesting. Hopefully it brings out more jobs and, and, and some more opportunities out there. So, well, hey, we are here with the world famous Ron Miller from TechCrunch, Enterprise Reporter. And he's actually the only face of Enterprise at TechCrunch, which is awesome. But TechCrunch always has a lot of cool, fun stuff. So you can catch him there. And uh, Ron, what's your handle? Is it at Ron underscore Miller, if that's correct? That's correct. That's right. All right. For those who are not to be represented by other Ron Millers, this is the one and only. Thanks a lot for your insights. And of course, thanks for rocking it. Go Pats. Oh, no, not again. I'm from Philly. Come on. Yeah, I know. I'm doing that on purpose. I know, but I'm a Steelers fan, so it doesn't matter. Anyways, I don't know what to do. All right. We've got Episode number 93, the really 96 in my mind, but that's okay. Who's coming up in episode 93, Vala? We have a great, great uh, group of uh, guests next week. We have Melissa Schilling, author and uh, uh, NYU professor. We have Mark Lombard, president at Maryville University. And we have uh, Gunter Spenfeld, founder and partner of Novena. They just did uh, extensive research in terms of scoping uh, blockchain and, and the market opportunity with blockchain, which is, I believe, at 25 billion in the next few years. So oh, I it's a, it's a blockchain was over, Vala. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, it's an educational segment with a look forward on what will be a technology that could very well disrupt higher ed. Uh, so, so that's the theme for, for next week. And uh, Ray, closing remarks from India. Thank you for being with us at one in the morning. 
<laughs> hey, no problem. I got to catch this flight to uh, from Delhi home. But uh, yeah, I can tell you like lots of interesting stuff here in India. People are really excited. They're looking at blockchain, IoT, AI. All the big services vendors are are hot for uh, for this technology in terms of what's going on. I was here for the uh, great place to work um, conference here in India, and uh, you know definitely people talking about how to improve inclusion, leadership, reskilling, training. Some of the hot things that are going on out here, and uh, got a chance to meet Michael Bosey, who's the uh, yeah, CEO of Great Place to Work uh, and as well. So a lot of fun stuff here and uh, a lot of organizations uh, changing the way and changing their culture and finding a mission and purpose. So, Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you everyone for watching uh, episode 92 of Disrupt TV every, every Friday, 11 Pacific to Eastern. And uh, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Bye,